Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you who are joining us in the house. Some of you I haven't seen in a while, and it's so good to see you. Uh, for those in the bonus room, as well as, of course, those of you who are home and joining us from there. Um, today, we are continuing our teaching series about power. And uh, we are going to be reflecting on some of the emerging cultural beliefs about power. But we're also going to be exploring what the Bible teaches us about power. So if you have a Bible handy, I'm going to get you to turn to the book of James, chapter 3. Uh, so whether it's paper or digital, uh, whatever version you're into, uh, put your thumb in there and keep it there. We'll be getting to there in just a moment. Uh, I just want to remind you that uh, for those of you just joining us, this is, this is a teaching thinking series. So our goal in this series is to get you to think critically and biblically about power. So I want to encourage you to uh, take lots of notes um, to uh, maybe write down a bunch of questions you might have and, of course, encourage you to do your own research. Uh, we have notes available for you. If you came in today in-house, you'll have a paper copy with you. But you can also, uh, for those who are joining us from home, you can go online to crosspointchurch.ca slash notes, and you can get a copy of them there. Um, in the notes, you will see some suggested resources. I've got an A-list, and I've got an almost A-list. Uh, I do want to encourage you after today, maybe check out that article there that's from Tim Keller. I think that that's going to help to flesh out a lot of what we're talking about uh, this morning. Now, recap. I think a recap is really in order. It's really, really important to get our heads framed around this conversation again. Last week, we talked about how our beliefs um, are about power really undergird most of our stickiest cultural conversations we're having today. And this is not always obvious, but Beneath these conversations, there are these assumptions that we share about power. So how power works, what we should do with power. And, and, and I think it's really important that we should learn to recognize these assumptions because these assumptions that we have, these cultural assumptions about power, do not always align with a biblical understanding of power. So we talked about how these assumptions are rooted in what's called postmodern thought. And, and postmodern thought, I know it's a big idea, but I mean, it's, it's basically a, a movement that began in the 60s as an academic field in philosophy, and then it began to kind of work its way into our culture. And postmodern thought has three basic themes. Number one, truth is a matter of perspective. So our perspectives that we have about truth are largely informed by our culture. They're what are called cultural constructs. Second, another theme is that meta-narratives in postmodern thought are generally suspect. So they would say there's no big stories, there's, there's no true ideologies, there are no ethical systems that we can say universally apply to everyone. How, how can there be if truth is perspectival, right? Finally, postmodernists will believe that there is an unbreakable link between knowledge and power. So all knowledge, everything we know, ultimately, is constructed or developed within systems of power. So all the truth claims that we have are only truth claims because they are legitimized by those people who have power. So the winners, essentially, get to determine what's true. They script the language, they control the knowledge until it just becomes kind of like common sense to all of us. 
So let me illustrate this for you this morning, just to help get our minds thinking about this. What do you call this thing? All right. Well, if, if you are from Alberta, it is a hoodie. Um, as a matter of fact, most Canadians will call it a hoodie. Some people will even call it a hooded sweatshirt, which is sick and wrong. But if, like me, you are from Saskatchewan, you will call it a what? A bunny hug. Exactly. The question is, who is right? What is it really called? Well, that is a matter of perspective. Some would even say that it's a cultural construct. But why is it called a bunny hug only in Saskatchewan? Well, it's got to be because something to do with power games played with language, right? After all, in Saskatchewan, we are always the underdog. We're like that kid brother nobody really takes ever seriously. And so all of the other powerful provinces got together, they re-scripted the language, and they framed it so that everybody agrees that it is now called a hoodie rather than a bunny hug. Is that true? Well, actually, that's not why they call it a bunny hug. Let me tell you why they call it a bunny hug. They call it a bunny hug because way back when, um, Diefenbaker uh, decided uh, that he was going to name it a bunny hug because there was a problem in Saskatchewan. There was a shortage of rabbits. Rabbits were being exterminated at a rapid rate. Diefenbaker liked rabbits, and so he wanted to make sure that there were enough rabbits left in the province. So he said, what's the way I can do this? How can I save the rabbits? Let's find one of the pieces of clothing that is endeared to Saskatchewanians. So let's find this piece and let's call it a bunny hug because after all, who doesn't want to hug bunnies, right? And so he called it a bunny hug and, and then after that, the population of rabbits in Saskatchewan exploded. That's not true. There's nothing true about that story whatsoever. <laughs> I have no idea why it's called a bunny hug and there's lots of tall tales about why it's called a bunny hug. But it, 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 I mean, it does roll off the tongue a lot better than hooded sweatshirt, doesn't it? Bunny hug, bunny hug, bunny hug. Okay, now, by the 90s, postmodern thought began what was called a moral mutation. It changed from ideas in the academy to activism in mainstream culture. So it, it was transformed into a movement of what ought to be. We should believe this. This is how we ought to behave. And it's what today we would call critical theory or uh, social justice movement. And, and even though maybe less than 10% of our population actually holds these ideas, they have been able to exert considerable influence over us in society. So this movement, let me explain it just a, a little bit. Let me recap again, right? This, the, it tends to divide society into either dominant uh, or marginalized identities or groups. So put, to put simply, there are those who have power and abuse it. There are those who are marginalized or don't have power and are abused. And, and it's mostly concerned with certain issues. So issues like race, gender, sexuality. But it's also begun to expand into other areas and arenas of life as well. And we'll get to that a little later. So the general goal of this movement, of the critical theory postmodern uh, post um, social justice movement, the general goal is to resist those with power and privilege. Those people who have organized society to benefit themselves through structures of power and the use of knowledge and language. So what they would say is the privileged need to be woken up and the powerful need to be called out, canceled, or taken down. So critical theory tends to give moral high ground to those who are powerless and oppressed, and it also tends to silence those with power and privilege. Because after all, the, those who are powerful, those who are privileged, uh, are part of the oppressive system that tends to control knowledge. And, and it's because it's a moral movement, right? We've called it a moral movement, um, and some would even say that it's almost like a new form of religion. Because it's a moral movement, it tends to be almost puritanical in its beliefs. 
So it, there's this tendency towards intolerance to difference and disagreement. It, it censors opposition. It even ignores rigorous evidence-based scholarship that contradicts it. So you might think that the first rule of Fight Club is we don't talk about Fight Club. Well, the first rule of, of critical theory is thou shalt not disagree with critical theory. And if you do this, you might get called out or mobbed or canceled. Hence the term cancel culture and where it comes from. So last week, then we answer, asked this question. We moved on from there. And then we asked the question, what does the Bible teach us about power? And, and we began exploring Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we explored a concept called creative power. And we discovered in, that, the, the, in Genesis 1 and 2 that power is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, power is a gift from our creator God, who, gives us, uh, who, who is both good and who is powerful. And God has given each and every one of us, each and every one of us in this room, those of you joining us online, he's given each and one, every one of us his creative power to act as cultivators of the world that God has given to us. So we all have the capacity to make something out of something, to bring order to chaos. And when we do this, when we utilize the creative power that God has given us, we are joining with God in his cultural mandate. We are contributing to human flourishing. We are living by design as God's image bearers. But then we ended last week with a question. If power is a good gift from God, then what happened? Why then today do we see abuses of power? What do we do with oppressive systems? How do we answer the problem of the church abusing its own power? So basically today, we are picking up where we left off last week. And we're going to talk about the other side of power. For while power is a good gift, power can also be misused and power can be abused. And there are really two ways, generally speaking, that power can be used. And so to talk about this, I want us to dive into James chapter 3 this morning, starting at verse 13. So I'll read the text, and I just invite you to follow along as I read it. Here we go, James chapter 3. It says this, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of God. So, so, so James is, is essentially talking about what you do with your power. Because we all have power. We all have what, what, what people would call human agency. We can make choices and we can impose those choices on the world around us. So we can make something of the world. This is ultimately what power is. But wisdom guides us in how we use our power. And James would say that there are two kinds of wisdom. He says that there is wisdom from above, and he says that there is wisdom from below. And what's clear from, from this text is that these two kinds of wisdom are incompatible. They are like oil and water, fire and ice, mom jeans and dad bods, okay? Incompatible. And the reason why they are incompatible is because they each have a different use, they each have a different source, and they each have a different goal. So I want to spend some time breaking down each of these types of uh, wisdom 
and we're going to start from below, and we're going to work our way up, and we're going to basically ask these same three questions. Number one, how is this power manifested? Number two, what is power's source? And number three, what is power's goal? So let's start from below. How is power manifested from below? Well, you notice it says two ways. Number one, bitter jealousy. Number two, selfish ambition. So what is bitter, bitter jealousy? Bitter, bitter jealousy is, well, it's something many of us have experienced. It's resentment over what others have and you do not have. That's jealousy. So it could be anything. I mean, it could be assets, it could be opportunities, friendships, and of course, it could be power. But this is more than just disappointment. It is bitter jealousy. So it lingers. It doesn't taste good. It, it poisons the heart. It, it spoils relationships. Now, selfish ambition, it, it, it's seeking power for personal gain. So this is more than just a desire to work hard and to get ahead. I mean, that's very, very normal. That's, that's part of the creator's design. But this is a seeking after power for power's sake. So you have a personal agenda to rise above others, to, to, to have power over others, to be somebody. So James would say that these motives, these two um, manifestations, they really are nothing that we should be boasting about. He says, as a matter of fact, if you see these things lurking in your heart, he says you should be disturbed by them because ultimately they're a distortion of the truth. They're a distortion of wisdom and they're a distortion of power. So here's the second question. What is power source? What is this power source? James would say that wisdom from below comes from several sources. You notice that he says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. So there's this false trinity of forces that's fueling this power from below. Well, what are these? Well, James seems to be referring to the classic, you know, false trinity of the forces of darkness of the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So this trinity forces influence, uh, and it forces us and influences us towards false wisdom. And really, at the end of the day, it's a distortion of power. It's not actual power. So the Bible teaches us this. And this is where it, you'll, you'll find a real divergence away from critical thought. The Bible would say that there is more to our world than just physical matter. That, that working behind the scenes, there's actually a whole host of evil spiritual powers. And these are, of course, led by Satan. And in addition, he would, the, the scripture would say that there's this world system that we live in, which is ultimately his dominion. And if that isn't bad enough, each of us has our own flesh. That, that unspiritual self that wants to live completely independent of God, independent of his authority and independent of his assistance. So there's this, this triple threat that's happening in the world that's against us. And actually, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Ephesians. Let's look at the scripture. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this wisdom from below, it's fueled by some complicated web of forces that are seeking to undermine the work of God in the world. And that's all I'm going to say about this now. We're actually going to do a, a full week on this, and we're going to talk about these hidden powers, but we'll leave that for now. So what is power's outcome? from below. Well, when you use power from below, where does it lead? James says it leads to these two outcomes. First, it results in disorder. So broken friendships, broken community, a, a, a community where everyone's kind of out for themselves. It's about pulling apart rather than, than bringing together. Factions, partisanship, 
The Lord of the Flies, the Hunger Games, right? But the other result, he says, that comes from this is what's called vile practice. And here's the thing. When self-indulgence becomes our greatest value, like when you just live solely for self-indulgence, then human behavior continues down this slippery slope towards evil. So what is right becomes wrong, and what is wrong becomes right. So these are the outcomes of this wisdom from below. But what about wisdom from above? Well, let's ask the same questions. How is power manifested? Well, here, power or human agency shows up very differently. And, and James gives us a whole list of qualities that kind of describe uh, this, this, this power's manifestation. First of all, you'll notice that he says it is pure. And he uses that word intentionally, that word first. First, it's pure. So what does he mean by pure? Well, he means it's, it's good, it's right, it's blameless, it's innocent, it's untainted by evil or selfishness. It is pure, this kind of power. He then lists six other qualities that unpack what this purity looks like. First of all, he says, well, if it's pure, what does that mean? Well, number one, it's peaceable. So it's bringing people together. It's not tearing them apart. Number two, it's gentle. So it takes a soft approach to people. It, it, it's respectable. It's considerate. It's not a hammer. Number three, it's open to reason. So it doesn't have to be right. It, it's actually willing to be wrong. It wants to discover the truth. Next, he says it's full of mercy and good fruits. In other words, it's willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. It's willing to give people second chances. Not only that, it's willing to give people 700 second chances. And this ultimately leads to fruitful relationships. But then he says it's impartial. What does that mean? Well, it means it makes good judgments without an agenda or without showing favoritism to individuals or to groups. Everyone is treated fairly because everyone is valued. That's impartial. And finally, it's sincere. So there's nothing hidden. There's no hidden agenda. There's no secrets. There's no falsehood. What you see is what you get. Now, I think you'll agree that if you take away all of these qualities from relationships, from cultural discourse, from political discourse, if you take away all of these qualities, you're definitely headed towards abuses of power. And sadly, these qualities don't represent the quality of our current cultural or political discourse. I mean, just spend a little bit of time on social media or listening to the news, and you'll find that these qualities don't reflect what we're hearing and what we're seeing today. And yet these are the way from above and not the way from below. Well, what is the power source? Well, in the wisdom from above, the source of power flows from God himself. And this is implied in the term above. It's coming from above. So there, this is where there's the real trinity as opposed to the false trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this kind of wisdom requires dependency upon God. It actually requires a certain amount of surrender to come to this point to say, God, I, I, want, I want what you want. But also come to the point to say, God, I can't do this by myself. I surrender to you and I need you to help me to do it. That's what, it, that's what this power's source is. What is power's outcome? Well, when you sow peace, you get a harvest of righteousness, it says. Well, what is peace? You know, most often when you talk to people about peace, they think of peace as an absence of conflict. But that's only one side of peace. That's, that's, that's not a full account of the biblical idea of peace. The, the biblical idea of peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And this word has more to do about harmony. It has more to do about people working together 
It has more to do about flourishing relationships. That's what true peace is. And this is saying that when you plant this kind of peace into your relationships, into the soil of your relationships, it is going to lead you to a harvest of righteousness. So a, a, a kinds of relationships, the kind of community, the kind of culture where everything becomes right, where everything works, where everything is good. Now, I, I want to pull back now for just a second. I want us to just contrast these outcomes. I want to contrast the outcome of the wisdom from above compared to the outcome of the wisdom from below. The wisdom from above leads to disorder and vile practice. Uh, sorry, the wisdom from below leads to disorder and vile practice. But where does the wisdom from above lead? Just the opposite, towards peace and towards righteousness. And I think the question each and every one of us has to ask ourselves this morning is this. Which path to wisdom would you prefer to walk on? Think about it in the framework of your, your, your family. Which path would you choose? Your, your workplace, your, your, your neighborhood, your culture, your society. Which path to wisdom would you prefer to walk on? It, it kind of reminds me of a story uh, I once heard. Uh, a rabbi was asked by one of his students. The students asked him, Rabbi, what is the difference between heaven and hell? And the rabbi said to his student, I want you to imagine that hell as a place of, is a place of full of tremendous bounty. I mean, every person there is surrounded by giant bowls and plates of every kind of delicious food imaginable. And they can help themselves to these plates. The only problem is if it falls to the floor, the food disappears. But here's another problem that every human being faces. Every human being has the same problem. Their forearms are not actual forearms, but they're large, constructed spoons, three or four feet in length. Can you imagine that, having forearms, three or four foot length spoons? So they can reach the food and they can scoop it up with their spoons. But because their forearms are so long, they can't actually bend their arms so that they can get the food to their mouths. And so as a result, they spend eternity in continual starvation, surrounded by delicacies that they cannot consume. This is a picture of hell. So then another student asked them the question, well, if that's what hell is, Rabbi, then what is heaven like? And the rabbi said, well, in heaven, they learn to feed each other. And this marks the difference between the way from above versus the way from below. Now, I, I want to pause for just a moment. And, and, and I think it's important that we stop and we point out some of the differences between the biblical framework and the critical theory framework. Now that we've had a little bit more of an understanding of what the biblical framework looks like. As I pointed out last week, Biblical thought and critical theory share some agreement on the outcomes of power. I mean, for example, injustice. When we spot real injustices in the world, do we not want, as the people of God, to say, no, those injustices should not be. This is not how God designed humanity to work together. So I, I think we can appreciate some of their efforts, and, and I think it's important to confront real oppression in our time. But, there are significant differences when it comes to their orientation towards power as well as their understanding of the origins of power. So based on what we've learned from James, what are some of those differences? Let me just point out a few. Number one, uh, critical theory denies universal moral truth claims. 
So critical theory argues against meta-narratives, big stories, universal claims of truth, and it's because truth is, remember, it's perspectival, it's culturally constructed. But not only that, truth claims are essentially dominant discourses. They are nothing more than power being exercised by those with power through language, through knowledge. Language doesn't actually describe reality. Language only constructs reality. So, for example, you cannot say that cheating on my spouse is morally wrong because that is simply religion's way of exercising control over people. You cannot say that a 600-pound man is chronically obese because that's a social construct of a society that is infected with fat phobia and it's using the language of science to control this narrative. So if you follow the train of thought to its natural conclusion, this means that all truth is relative, which means that there is no way from above. There is no good God who created the world with moral order, who created us to be image bearers. And the book of James, in fact, is just one piece of a larger controlling narrative. So you can see the, the tension here. You can see how this might be a, a serious departure from biblical faith. So how do we respond to this difference? Well, keep in mind that critical theory is largely based upon an assumption. And it's a totalizing assumption. And the assumption is that all language is dominating discourse. Not some language, all language is dominating discourse. Now, I think we can agree that sometimes language is used for nefarious purposes. Fake news, propaganda. I think we can agree on that. But critical theorists will say that all knowledge is dominating discourse. Take that for a test drive this morning. What is two plus two? Four, okay. Well, two plus two is four, but only because that's dominating discourse. It's only that way because it's a cultural construct. It may not, in fact, be two plus two. Is your head hurting yet? Okay. I did two, three years of this in, uh, two years of this in undergrad philosophy. Man, my head was hurting by the end. So if you think that critical theory would never go that far, like critical theory, come on, are they really going to question math? Are they really going to question science? The reality is yes, absolutely they are. It already has. It's begun to infiltrate uh, science, math departments, engineering departments in different schools to say that there are different perspectives on mathematical answers and how we come together towards these conclusions. Uh, it's in, uh, I encourage you to read the book that I've, I've um, put in the notes, Cynical Theories. Uh, it unpacks and explains, and it's very well researched, very, very well researched. Now, the other problem critical theory faces is that it's actually inconsistent. So while they deny meta-narratives, it's interested in, interesting is that they have, in fact, created a meta-narrative. They've actually created a totalizing meta-narrative that, that valorizes the oppressed and that vilifies the privileged. But not only that, it, it, it's acting as a moral movement with universal moral requirements. They actually say, this, this is it. This is the way you should behave. Everybody should think this way. Everybody should have moral ethics in this way. You cannot claim that all morality is culturally constructed and then on the, in another breath say that your own moral claims are not culturally constructed. It is just simply logically inconsistent for the movement to do this. So that's the first challenge. Second, it undermines our common humanity. 
as we know and as we've, we've been talking about, the Bible had, would say that each and every one of us is created in the image of God. And because of that, every single one of us has value. Every single one of us has worth. We have dignity. And we should be treated as such. This is our primary identity, above and beyond all of our group or ethnic identities. And, and when you become a follower of Jesus, your identity in Christ transcends. It goes above all of your other identities. And it's this shared identity that we have that ultimately unites us together. So we celebrate diversity, absolutely. We, we say God has created every person, every culture, and, and beautifully and, and wonderfully. We celebrate that. But we are united in our common humanity. And, and the, the wisdom from above would say we need to seek to unite ourselves in this way. But here's the challenge. When you reduce all human relationships to power conflicts between groups, you tend to stay with power conflicts with groups. When you divide society between the privileged and the oppressed, it leads to separation and not to unity. And this is ultimately why adherents of, of, of critical theory often resort to anger and to moral outrage. It's because critical theory tends to magnify differences, not unite commonalities. Now, I want to be clear, this does not mean that as believers in Christ, we ignore systemic oppression when we see it. The Bible agrees with us that systemic oppression does exist. Why do you think Jesus cleared out the temple with a whip? It's because certain socioeconomic people within that day were being marginalized. Why do you think the apostles appointed deacons to deal with ethnic favoritism in their food lines? Because there was a system that was preventing them from getting there, okay? Now, I won't go into more detail about this. We're actually going to be talking about this on another week when we get further along in the series. I'm kind of leading breadcrumbs here, okay? Pay attention, keep with us, okay? But critical theory makes everything about systemic oppression. This is the problem. All problems are about unjust social structures. So all problems are about conflict between the privileged and the oppressed. And because of that, it undermines our common humanity. And I want to ask you this morning, are not human relationships a little bit more complex than this? Isn't there something problematic about viewing relationships solely through the lens of power? I mean, bring that into your marriage. Let's see how that works, you know? Who's got the power today, honey? <laughs> I know it's you, okay, right? <laughs> are there not other dynamics at play in our individual as well as social relationships? What about trust? What about love? What about faith and hope? There are other dynamics at play in our relationships. Third, critical theory lacks a vision for human flourishing. What happens after the powerful are brought down and the oppressed are lifted up? Critical theory doesn't seem to have a guiding vision beyond this. In fact, it cannot because it actually denies utopian visions and ideals. It denies big stories. Critical theory has what's called no telos. So there's no end that it's building towards other than deconstruction and the elimination of abuses of power. So instead, what critical theory tends to do when it's actually succeeding is it tends to double down on calling out offenses against oppressed groups. So it finds fine-tuned ways of, of determining offense from trigger warnings to microaggressions. And these definitions and these descriptions of offenses are continuing to grow. Um, it's also given birth to what many, uh, what many critics have called uh, kind of a victimhood culture that's out there. 
Now, the Bible, however, does provide a big story. And it does provide a clear and compelling vision of human flourishing. From cover to cover, the Bible begins in a garden and it ends up in a city. And it paints a picture of our great and future hope when Christ returns and he rights all wrongs and he brings justice and harmony to a broken and fragmented world. And this, this vision of ours, it actually pulls us as along as believers in Christ so that we begin to live now how we will ultimately live then. And so followers of Jesus, we know where we are going, how we're going to get there, and who we are, we are becoming along the journey towards that end. So the Bible has a vision for human flourishing that includes justice, compassion, restoration, and dignity for all people. So three, three differences that I, that I think are really important, and there are fundamental differences between these two movements, these two networks of thought. Well, let's return to the two kinds of wisdom. Okay, let's get back to that. Let's get back to the text. Remember, each of these relates to power differently. They're sourced differently. They're manifest differently. They, they have different outcomes. There's the way from above. There's the way from below. And the question before us is this. Which path of wisdom will each of, each of us take? The late Eugene Peterson, he, he actually contrasts these two pathways to power in his book, Reverse Thunder. And the book is really a commentary on the book of Revelation. You know, a lot of people read Revelation and think, oh, Revelation is like this crystal ball that's going to give us an idea of what the future is going to look like. That's not why Revelation was actually written. The book of Revelation is actually a contrast in powers. And as, as believers, we can choose to follow two powers. We can choose to follow the way of the dragon, or we can choose to follow the way of the lamb, who is the resurrected son of God, who leads us through self-sacrifice. And so Eugene Peterson, in, in his own poetic way, just, just brilliantly walks us through the book of Revelation and contrasting these two types of power. I'd just like to read a little bit from, from this as he talks about this from his book. He says this, he says, we choose. We choose. We follow the dragon and his beasts along their parade route, conspicuous with the worship of splendid images, elaborated in mysterious symbols, fond of statistics, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the crowds in order to get access to power and become self-important. Or, we follow the lamb along a farmyard route, worshiping, worshiping the invisible, listening to the foolishness of preaching, practicing a holy life that involves heroically difficult acts that no one will ever notice in order to become simply our eternal selves in an eternal city. It is the difference politically between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful or, if unskilled, getting used by them and entering into covenants with the people around us so that the power of salvation extends into every part of the neighborhood, the society, and the world that God loves. And friends, we can choose the way of the dragon or we can choose the way of the lamb. We can use our power for disorder and evil or we can use our power for peace and righteousness. We can expend our power on ourselves or we can expend our power on others. And Crosspoint, my hope and my prayer for us is that we will be a people who follow the way of the Lamb. And so I ask you again today, which path of wisdom will you choose to follow? You know, this summer, uh, Karen and I were, were visiting Moose Jaw and we were out for a walk one evening and, and we just randomly came upon my high school football coach. I mean, I, I hadn't seen this guy in, like, 
I don't know, like 25 years. It's been 25 years since this happened. So, so it was a grand reunion. He brought us in. He showed us his, his beautiful backyard, and, and we were reminiscing a little bit about the past. And, and his wife was there with us, and his 20-year-old son was there with us as well. And so somewhere along the conversation, I turned to his 20-year-old son. I said, listen, I just got to tell you something about your dad, something that you maybe don't know. I, I've been waiting actually 20 years to say this to, you, to him and I've just wanted to thank him for this. And of course, Karen prefaced it by saying, okay, he might cry right now, okay? Careful. And so I said to him, okay, uh, it was my grade 12 year in, in high school football, and it was the beginning of the season, and, and I needed new football cleats. I'd, I'd burned my other ones out. They were, I, um, they were, I had outgrown them. There's no way I could wear them. And I knew that my family did not have money to buy me football cleats. If you know my backstory, my broken backstory, you know why that's true. So I was penniless and I was powerless. And just to mention, just, just to talk about this with anybody was a, a shame-filled, embarrassing predicament. Because I was the captain of the football team and I couldn't afford shoes. So I went to my coach and I just asked him for advice. I said, coach, I, I, this is the predicament I'm in. I, I wonder if you could tell me where I can buy inexpensive cleats. And I also said to him, I said, Coach, I wonder if you could also be patient with me because I, I, I don't have the money for cleats, but I want to save up for cleats. So I wondered if for a couple of weeks I could play football with just normal, normal running shoes. And my coach paused for a moment, and he says, well, wait here. And he walked into another room, and then he came back into the room, and he was carrying a box. And he asked me the question, he says, what size of feet do you have? I said, well, size 11 and a half. He says, perfect. Opened it up, it was a brand new pair of cleats. He says, I bought this pair of cleats for myself for this football season because I needed new cleats, but I want you to have these cleats. He said, try them on. I tried them on. They fit perfectly. He says, the cleats are yours. And I turned to his son, and I said, I want you to know that because I want you to know what kind of a father you have. And I said, Coach, I want you to know that what you did made an incredible impact on me, and it helped plot the trajectory of my life towards generosity and doing good things for other people. Friends, this is how power is manifested in the way from above. And it is precisely the way that Jesus used his power. Jesus emptied himself of his power, leaving heaven, he took on human form. He set aside his divine power and his privilege, taking on the form of a servant. He was humbled, he was humiliated on a cross, and then he rose again in power. And he did this so that he could rescue those who were powerless to save themselves. Jesus models for us the way from above, and he invites us to do the same. To receive his saving power, to be transformed by his transforming power, and to use his power to make something of the world. So the question for us today is, what path of wisdom will you walk on today? Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a moment as we stand here before our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to just reflect on that question. What path will you choose to walk on today? Take a moment. And why don't you talk to God about that?
Maybe make a declaration in your heart to him. Maybe lean into him and surrender. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, we thank you today for surrendering your power that we might be raised to life in power. We do not deserve it. We cannot earn it. We cannot buy it, but we receive it gladly today in faith, and we thank you for it. And we ask you to show us how to walk on this path of wisdom from above and how to use our power that you have given us to help others. God, what will that look like for me? Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this invitation. We lift you up in praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.